I think one good thing which we did right from day zero was investing in uh, in content and investing okay. heavily in marketing. Right, that's something which we which we had learned the hard way in our previous business. Right, so uh, I remember my our first hire in the new company was a content marketer. Right, and I'm super proud of that decision. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Statistics show that only 5% of all startups ever achieve annual revenue of a million dollars and less than 1% reach 10 million. Our mission is to help more than double the number of each companies that reach each of those thresholds. The voice you heard a moment ago is that of Vivek Kandawal. Vivek is the co-founder and currently COO of Izoto.com. Izoto is a owned audience marketing platform that helps media publishers, retailers, and brands, frankly, to own, build, and engage their audience by using web push notifications. They currently help over 15,000 marketers and that push out over 18 billion with the B notifications every month to engage their audiences. Questions we answered today are, you know, lessons learned when the same four founders start a second company, and and more importantly, how do you coexist with with four co-founders? How they narrowed their focus on segments that were where customers were getting the maximum value out of their product. I think this was a great idea. Why his first hire was a content marketer, There are only 17 channels available to marketers. Why customer success and customer activation is extremely important. What are stewards of responsible interruption? That was a new term that I hadn't heard, but we'll we'll get into that into the show. And plus much, much more. Now, onto the intro. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hello, Vivek. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brett. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure to have you. been looking forward to this conversation. Anytime I can get a high-growth CEO to come on and talk about their journey, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely my pleasure to have you here. So, why don't we get started? And the way I like to get started is help the audience understand current company, you know, kind of size, what you're comfortable talking about, your size, your role, and, and who you really work with. So give us some context of the today, and then I'll, I'll take you back in time. Sure thing. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, uh, thank you so much for having me here. I am excited about uh, our conversation today. Right. I am Vivek, Vivek Kanilwal. I'm a founder and COO at Izuto. Izuto is, uh, is an owned audience marketing platform that helps media publishers and retailers to own, engage, and retain their audience using web push notifications. We primarily work with uh, uh, small and mid-sized retailers and publishers across the globe. Some of the names, some of the popular names include the likes of Hearst Media Group, Mayo Clinic, Movie Star, Telefonica, Adidas, uh, Reebok, and so on. Yeah, my responsibility, my core job role on a daily basis uh, revolves around two things: uh, marketing and customer success. Uh, these are two functions that I take care of personally. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty. Good. That sort of uh, you know sums up uh, 
who I am, what I do, and what do we do as a company. Yeah. Awesome. And I'd argue that not all those companies you mentioned were small, but <laughs> yeah, congrats. <laughs> There's some, definitely some, some names in there. And before we, we go back, and I definitely want to get to right. the, you know, the ideation of, of the current company, you know, what is it really from a problem solving standpoint that, that you're addressing, you know, with your platform? And yeah, let's start with that. Let's really get down to, you know, what problem are you solving for, for these folks? Sure. So one of the biggest challenges that we have seen in the, in the digital ecosystem is the, is the over-dependency on the, on the duopoly of Facebook and Google, right? And uh, yep. you know, to add another name there, it's Amazon as well on the retail side. And, and that's something that is, that is constantly disturbing the head of marketing, the CMO, that they are so dependent on just these two, two giants, right? Right. Nobody, again, let's face it, right, Brent? Between you and me, we would never want all our eggs in two baskets, right? You always want to, you know, and, 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 and very specifically, if you do not have, if you do not have any control on those two tech giants, right? You know, you merely, you're, you're only at the receiving end. And that's a problem that has not been addressed or solved enough, right? More so for media publishers, right? Publishers like you, you know, you're a, you're a blogger. You've been blogging for a while now. You've been creating content for a while now, right? Right. Similarly, you know, uh, you know there are businesses who do this uh, full-fledgedly for a living, right? You know, trust media houses like The Hearst, The Washington Post, New York Times, right? some of the bigger names. These folks have been overtly dependent on Facebook and Google. And whenever something changes at these two companies, Facebook diffuses an algorithm change to update their newsfeed and Google decides that, okay, this, from moving forward, these things will not show up in search results. These publishers are impacted the most. Their traffic goes for a toss by, let's say, anywhere between 10% to 30%. And you know, suddenly they're down, by, down in revenues by 30% because most of their revenues till date comes from advertising. Exactly. So, so this is the problem which we are trying to solve. We're okay. trying to help these brands, literally, for lack of a better word, buy insurance against these changes which are being introduced, which are being forced or introduced by these tech giants. We're yeah. helping them build and own their audience so that they can engage them, they can retain them, and they can, they can truly sell whatever they have to sell to them, right? If it's a content, so be it. If it's a subscription, so be it. If it's a product, so be it, right? But we want to give the control back to the publishers. That's our, uh, that's a narrative. That's a, that's a story that we speak. Yeah, no, and that's so true. There's so few, we think about all the different types of industries outside of media. There's mm-hmm. not very many that have that built-in risk of a 30% you know, decrease in revenue because of a change on a platform that you don't control, right? <laughs> Most people would say, man, I don't know if that's a risk I'd sign up. And no, you're right. I think between that and Facebook and, you know, they own the network and you're, you're a player on it. So yeah, to, to take, I guess, mitigate some of the risk and you start to own some of that kind of is a huge, you know, huge step, step forward. So interesting. Okay. So I think that's a great segue into you know the journey of Isoto and how you 
ended up. So I believe, you know, the idea for this platform came out of a, a challenge that you were running into with your, your first startup. So let's, let's go in the, the time machine a little bit, take us back mm-hmm. to, what was it, 20, 2010 when you started your first company? Or why don't you give us a little bit of overview of what you were doing when you, you, you came across this problem? Right. So we start, uh, prior to Isoto, uh, I was uh, I had co-founded another company by the name of uh, Applied Mobile Labs. We ran that business for about good uh, seven years before moving okay. on uh, to build Isoto. And I think it, I think it was it was around 2014 and 15 when we had uh, grown that business really well. We had scaled that business to significant to, to generate significant profits uh, month and month, right? And that's when we, uh, and, and uh, again, we were playing in the, in the classic ad tech ecosystem. We had done, in fact, three pivots in our last, uh, last business. Uh, we had gone from an education tech platform to a media tech company to a classic ad tech uh, player working with telecom operators. And what we saw, and this is, uh, I think, 2014 to 15 was this insane craze where everybody wanted to build an app where you know there was this this massive surge of capital across you know across uh, ecosystems right? be it right. US India Europe right and everybody somehow believed that the only way to acquire customers was by building an app right and i remember i used to uh, i used to own uh, a nexus Four or a Nexus 5X, and my co-founder used to own an iPhone, and we used to struggle with with just keeping the apps on our phone because there was there was just not enough memory in our devices. Yeah, right. There was right. just not enough space, right? And we were wondering, you know, we would, and again, right, as an end user, I would install an app, play with it, and remove it very very quickly, or you know, I would get that 10% coupon, right, because I had installed the app, and then I would throw it away. Right. And I was, and as a marketer, I used to wonder, hey, what's really happening out there? Right? Why does the world believe that acquisition is the key? Right? Retention. And you know, at the same time, I think uh, a friend of mine had shared a report, uh, had actually leaked a report to me, which was from App Annie. And it mentioned like, you know, um, 80% of the apps are uninstalled in less than eight hours. And I was blown. By the right. You said 80% of them are uninstalled within eight hours. How many? Yes. Yeah. So the median life of an app was eight hours. Wow. Okay. And I was blown by that fact because back then I had seen marketers, I had seen marketers signing off on budgets in the range of $100,000 to a million dollars only and only driving app installations. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And as a marketer, it sort of, you know, beats you. How is this happening in the first place, right? It's just not right. <laughs> All said and done. Right. You know? So, uh, and that's when we sort of, you know, started thinking around with ideas around, hey, you know, can, if the problem is user engagement, right, then there has to be a better way of solving the problem rather than building an app scratch out. Because building an app was A, expensive. B, it was difficult to maintain that app because you had to, because you had to always release more and more uh, updates with every, you know, uh, with every OS version, right? True. And at yep. the same time, distributing an app is extremely difficult. 
unlike uh, unlike content which can which can be discovered via social or seo right app stores back then were not very sophisticated right True. in fact uh, you know till date if you look at uh, some of the top apps in in the categories right you would see you know the usual names always right you would see gmail you would see facebook snapchat pinterest twitter you know and the stream of it right it was right. not really a place where new app developers were thriving really right so no, it's, and, it's and, true yeah. yeah so and that's exactly when uh, we we also stumbled upon hey the browser now has a capability to push you a notification this seems really powerful we said let's sort of you know try to do something on top of this and see how this uh, looks like and that's where the journey started for us uh, for izuto interesting so it's kind of the and again, I'm going to paraphrase. So there was the rise of the app, right? Where everybody had to have yeah. an app. If you were a business, if you had a website, you had to have an app. And yeah. to your point, the, the medium life is eight hours. And then I'm looking at, you know, my iPhone right now as we're talking, I probably have 50 apps on there, but use maybe six, <laughs> right? So even exactly. though I haven't deleted yeah. them, it's still sitting idle yeah. on that. And so basically your thought was, hey, with the mobile web or the mobile browser getting stronger, right, then yeah. maybe there's an opportunity to leverage that versus versus the app. Okay. And so that's what you were working on in, or came across the idea in 2015, 2016? Yeah. 2015, I think, is when um, Chrome had rolled out uh, push notification capability. Okay. Push notification. Right. Got it. Got right. It, got it. And All right. I think, uh, yeah. So at that time, though, you still had the full you know, Applied Mobile Labs was, you know, in full swing. So how did you make that pivot once you uncovered where you thought the next, you know, the next opportunity was from your current company to the idea you had for, for something new? Right. So uh, Applied Mobile Labs, uh, we had a bunch of investors on board with us, right? They unfortunately did not share the same vision that we had for this new idea, right? They were not willing to back us up. We went back and forth a couple of times with them. Okay. But uh, in the end, we decided, hey, you know what? Screw it. We'll just do it our way. Right. So, so yeah, uh, I think in 16, 16 March is when we quit, quit the company we had founded. Right. And uh, we said, uh, let's do this scratch up all over again. Yeah. And this time, let's try to, let's try to do this without the investors, right? without the investor money. And that's how this started okay. off. Okay. Yes. We, we, we did this one bootstrap. So when you left, which I can't imagine was an easy decision, but you know, you believed in your, your convictions. So when you were starting Izuto, was it just you and a couple of co-founders? How many people did you have at the beginning when you said, you know what, let's make this happen? Uh, well, we had, I think about uh, eight people in total with us. Right? Okay. We had some of our uh, early, early believers were, so the teammates we were working with at Applied Mobile Labs. Right? Okay. And uh, yeah, they joined us on our journey. And uh, yeah, that's how we started off. We were about uh, almost uh, eight to nine people right on day zero, right? We put in our, uh, whatever we had in our bank account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, we had about six credit cards between the, between the three of us, four of us. Right. And yeah, we had swiped all of them to the max. Yeah. Right. Wow. Well, <laughs> it's, 
And I like the idea, and I know you said you had raised some money for the first one and you wanted to take some of the pressure off and bootstrap the yeah. second one. And the fact, you know, a lot of the founders I talk to when they start that journey will have a co-founder, two co-founders. But the fact that you started with eight, I'm assuming there was some, you know, payroll on day one, or they probably understood oh, yes. there's yeah. a little bit of a ramp yeah. time, but you were, you know, already starting to build some debt before, you know, you even hit play on the first day, right? Yeah. I mean, you were, so we were four founders, right? Uh, the okay. core team was around about eight people, right? Uh, but yeah, you know, four founders. Uh, right on day zero, we had payroll. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes, right. So yeah, we we sort of never. So so it, it's it's a different journey from a conventional startup, right? I mean, this right. was you know uh, all said and done a second startup, right? We we knew that we 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 knew we would make better mistakes this time, right? Right. Uh, yeah, so that definitely helped. Right? The experience of running a company for about seven years definitely sort of uh, helps you take more calculated risks. Right, learn, you, learn right. from your your previous yes. journey. Yes. Yeah. So, so once you guys got started, how how quickly was it until you got your first customers on board? Is this a three month process? Was six months? How did what did that acquisition hmm. initial acquisition look like? Good question. I think we were we had started in March 2016, and I remember getting our first payment in the month of June. Yeah, until okay. about three three odd months, four odd months. The fourth month is when we had our first customer paying us dollars, right? Which was very exciting for us because that was like a first validation happening. Absolutely. Right? I remember. Yeah. So. Number four months of you know, building the product, building the website, getting things set up into end, right? We were able to, yeah, we, we saw first revenue trickling down in, in three or four months. Yes. Got it. And from that journey, you know, from the first customer to now, did you guys end up making any big pivots, you know, as part of the, either who you were targeting as customers or in the, in the, the product or service itself? Yes and no. Right. So, the first year really was, you know, focusing on or leveraging the the unfair advantage that we had as founders, right? As uh, you know, as second time entrepreneurs, uh, life is slightly easy for you because uh, you build a rapport, you you know folks around, you can call up people and you know, sign them up for uh, and ask them to sign up for your product, you know, give them free trials, you know, get their feedback on the product really quickly. That's something which we did for the first uh, first year. We doubled down okay. and we called up every single person that we knew. Right, this was you know our uh, our unfair advantage. Right, our positioning in the ecosystem, our access, our network helped us really really well back in the day. Right, it was only I think in Ma in uh, next in April seventeen, right, which is when we decided to figure out. Hey, we looked at our customer list, right, and I think we had about. Total of you know hundred odd customers on board with us. Right? Oh, okay, we were, nice. We, we were about I think at twenty thousand dollars of MRR back in there back then, right? And we were wondering, okay, you know, we've we've got some customers already with us. We, we are we're clocking decent revenues, right? We are we can see profitability in in near future, right? But uh, who exactly are we building this product for? And right. It's about the same time uh, we happened to join a join a B two B venture catalyst program by the name of Opeka, which is uh, which does outcome based equity. 
Okay. Yeah. So so we so we joined Opeka, and that's when we started focusing on okay, you know, who who is the which customers are getting the maximum value out of the product that we have built so built so far. And uh, we got two answers straight up. Right? The first one was e-commerce. Right? The folks in e-commerce love Isoto because they're able to clock you know five percent, ten percent sales using our product, right? which okay, is nice. a significant number in the in the in the retail industry. Right. And then uh, at the same time, we also had a lot of media publishers who were like, okay, we love this product because we're able to see. You know, ten percent traffic, fifteen percent traffic coming in from push notifications. Uh, so we sort of figured out that okay, these two segments have the maximum value, or see the maximum value in the product. What was very, what was very different, or in fact, very new, was the paying power of these two segments was very, very different. Right? Oh, interesting. E-commerce, yeah. yeah, e-commerce companies are very comfortable paying dollars for something that is generating revenue. Right, the way they look at growth is, can we invest more dollars in a channel which is giving us more sales? Right, so it's very much, very much a yeah math equation, right? What's the ROI exactly. of the invested yeah, dollar? Exactly. Okay. Right. So yeah. if I put in X dollars, can I get in five X? If I can be five X, fantastic. Let's just sort of do, you know, let's just go and double down on that particular channel. Right. Unfortunately, that is not how publishers think. <laughs> no, publishers, that's true. publishers are lot uh are actually very conservative with their spending because they are because they're actually very uncertain about their monthly check coming in from google and facebook right they're consistently dependent on on google to tell them okay this is how you much you will earn so they don't so they, so they have very little control on that equation as you rightly said right so, Interesting. so we always knew that hey they are they're a definite customer for us right but we would need to monetize them in a slightly different manner. But e-commerce was a very clear cutout segment for us right from day zero. Yeah. Interesting. And that, so that kind of evolved into two different types of messaging and the, the approach to market. And is that, so the first year, just going back a little bit, was a lot of the mm-hmm. hustle, right? Let's call on our network, make some cold yeah. calls and to reach out. So by the time you got into after a year, so into year two, started making some more investments in the marketing side. You know, I'm looking at your site. I see you've got the uh, conversational marketing on there. When did you start to get more, call it sophisticated with your demand generation? Right. Good question. So I think one good thing which we did right from day zero was investing in, uh, in content and investing okay. heavily in marketing, right? That's something which we, which we had learned the hard way in our previous business, right? So uh, I remember my our first hire in the new company was a content marketer, right? And I'm super proud of that decision. And I think with, in, within uh, seven to eight months, we had set up our basic marketing stack, which was HubSpot. Then there was Drift on the website, which was to to talk to uh, site visitors and so on and so forth. It was yeah. So, so the marketing stack was pretty much in place in the first year itself. So I think we really started cranking the engine in the second year, right? Somewhere around June or July, right? Which is uh, which is when, and after we had figured out, okay, we want to clearly double down on e-commerce as a segment, and we want to keep on, you know, con- uh, discovering or exploring our GTM in the publisher segment, right? So we were, I mean, we were kind of in two boats. 
right? Right. But yeah. uh, given the fact that we were four founders, we had that mental bandwidth to sort of uh, you know pull this together. So that's what we did. And just to just that, not sorry, mm. to interrupt you, but you know, from a, a lessons learned standpoint, it's been interesting for me talking with different founders. And you're right, the ones that have made the journey for the first time and almost everyone I've, I've spoken to has been successfully able to scale their business. You know, sometimes I'll say it's a, it's a 10 year overnight success and, you know, a number of pivots, they finally found the sweet spot, but almost yeah. to a person, they admitted that they wish they would have invested heavier into marketing early on. And so the fact that you learned that lesson from, you know, company one and carried that through to company two. And again, this is a, a broad generalization, but in theory, it's, you know, two to three year uh, acceleration potentially of revenue and customers if you get the marketing right early on versus waiting and waiting and waiting until you finally pull yeah. the trigger with, with some yeah. of that. So interesting. I totally agree. I totally agree. In fact, uh, as and when we do the third startup, right, the first thing I would do is marketing, right, before anything else, before we write a single line of code before we have a single, you know, landing page up on the website, the first thing I would do on the web uh, is to start building a marketing list. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's, I, I won't say it's a growing trend because I think I've heard it from one other person, but it, it was kind of echoing what you said there that, hey, if I'm going to build a community of folks, right, because essentially that's what you're trying to do with e-commerce and ultimately with the, the media, create a community of people that, you know, use your your solution if you can get them excited about it prior to even having, uh, you know, a full product. It, it makes sense versus, hey, here's my product I spent 18 months developing. Now let's go find them. So how do you, I know not all businesses can follow that, but I do, you know, to your point, I'm hearing that more and more as I have these conversations and, and do the research. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, lessons, hard, lessons learned the hard way. Right. And, and frankly, I yeah. think the world's changing and the expectations are kind of changing, right? That even yeah. what you may have done four years ago probably isn't going to be as effective as it is today. And yeah, interesting. So the one thing I want to go back to, you had mentioned the, the four co-founders. And I always like to ask uh, the question because most of the time it's, it's two co-founders, maybe three. But, you know, again, from the companies that have successfully scaled, and that being a relative term, right? Most of the co-founders had complementary skill sets, right? Or areas of expertise. But at the end of the day, they still had a shared vision for where the company's going. I just wanted to ask you having four folks, you know, in that mm -hmm. co-founder space. Again, I can see the advantage from a skill set and expertise, but, you know, how were you able to manage that, you know, from an alignment of the, the vision of the company and making sure, you know, you don't get too bogged down, right, with four versus two. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Oh, yeah, it does. It's, I think okay. it's, it's a great question uh, for two reasons. Right? As much as uh, having four founders uh, on your side, super helpful while you're building a business, and especially a business where there are two folks, right? You know, one part of the business is focusing on, on commerce. One part of the business is focusing on uh, exploring a GTM with publishers, right? It's also very difficult to get all four folks on the same page at times, right? So I know, uh, you know I've had I've had a lot of heated discussions right, uh, amongst the four of us 
but i think the key remains right you know continuous conversations continuous communication clear communication as long as that's in place right you know fundamentals right very boring right. stuff but yeah nothing again right no no real surprises nothing that you know folks would not have heard of right uh, as long as uh, you're clear transparent and you know you know you're doing this together right the good thing is uh, you know we have worked with each other for about i think good 6 7 years we have a okay. long history of being together right so we understand you know, how each one of us operates we understand our strengths our weaknesses decently well and you know, i think the biggest point being the, our intent is in the right direction right we just sort of uh, need to figure out you know what's the right priority for the business right, right? yeah Yeah. yeah uh, makes sense. If you can get those resources aligned, it's it's hard to argue with the the value of having that experience and again, the adding complementary services is is big. The other question I wanted to ask you as you guys were scaling, there was some research that I just saw. I think it was from the OpenView group talking about SaaS founders and it mm-hmm. had companies of various different sizes. and what keeps them up at night and mm-hmm. the number one or number two i don't have it in front of me thing was but over 50% of them said it was go to market execution right which yeah. is not a big surprise but i love you for you know kind of take us back when you had the first few customers to i thought i read somewhere you have over 400 customers now in less than you know call it 3 years what did you guys do to help operationalize and they go to market right we talked about the marketing and how you were you know early on getting the message out in some of the demand gen but from an internal operation standpoint you know how did you you know execute once the volume you know scaled up pretty quickly right okay great question go to market right i think uh, yeah uh, companies who are who have achieved some level of product market fit right go to market becomes extremely extremely critical right? right and uh, again as i said uh, it sort of also varies uh, depending upon the geography you're focusing on as well right in india we've always had the leverage of uh, our network right which is which allows us to uh, to to pick up a phone call call up someone and set up a meeting and go ahead with that so it was a very outbound heavy approach uh, for the first uh, you know for the first few years right Uh, right. South East Asia, we did something very similar as well, right? We we were literally, you know, did nothing but but hardcore and outbound. Picked up a phone, started calling these customers, right? And started onboarding them. What definitely works a lot, uh, very well for us specifically, is a product has an inbuilt virality loop in it, because whenever somebody activates Izuto on their website, then uh, it shows up a. Uh, and whenever notification permission box comes up it shows up as powered by isuto yes. that sort of drives a lot of visibility for the brand as in when uh, local uh, you know uh, specifically in a local market right that has sort of helped us a lot in getting uh, visibility and and adoption from uh, from large uh, you know uh, from large giants right? something which we always focused on is uh, is hitting the top 10 brands as and when we pick up a geo right we don't really chase uh, the long tail of the mid market we would typically go after the, the the largest businesses in a specific geography right which is what sort of which again right can take you longer to close but sure uh, yeah once you have them right 
rest, everything sort of starts falling in place one by one by one, right? That right. was, uh, so, so yeah, a different strategy for India, slightly different for Southeast Asia. For US, we've primarily been actually, for US and Europe, uh, we've been a lot more inbound heavy. Okay. We focused a lot more on content marketing. We focused a lot more on working with select partners. Uh, we also uh, leveraged uh, uh, marketplaces like Shopify, Magento, WordPress to get visibility within the ecosystem, uh, drive our uh, you know, uh, drive our rankings in these uh, app stores, uh, and get to sort of uh, uh, and get uh, and reach more and more prospects overall. That's 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 something which is which has worked out really well for us. It's sort of uh, and we continue to invest on it on a daily basis. Uh, okay. This year was a lot more about uh, investing. Uh, in fact, experimenting with uh, with events and trade shows. We have old school. Time. Yeah, old school, right? See, there's the 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 marketing playbook is not a long one, especially <laughs> for B two B SaaS, right? There are no, there true. are only. Yeah, I recall, right? Including holdings and banners and TV commercials, there are 17 channels. That is all that you have. Fundamentally, as a marketer, you have access to 17 channels to tap into your audience and to get your message across, right? And this includes putting a holding on the highway. This includes putting a Super Bowl commercial, right? This includes all of that, right? So yeah, you know, it's it's not really a... <laughs> It's not a massive playbook, honestly. As long as you're able to focus on the on the right audience, life is good. So yeah, right. so we went old school this year, right? We have we've been uh, we've attended quite a few trade shows, and, and we've seen some amazing results as well. In fact, uh, as I speak, I'm uh, I'm preparing for the next trade show, which starts uh, next Tuesday in Berlin. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I think you know I'm a big fan. I think there was a, a time which was probably during your, your first company that you could drive a lot of call to action and demand gen, you know, outbound cold calling, which may have been just before that, you know, in the 2000s and before. But then I think there was a big emphasis on just demand, getting people to convert real time. But I think over, I'd say the last five years, I've seen more of it where what I would call the traditional brand awareness is starting to, people are understanding the value of that, right? You just can't go from, hey, I've never heard of your company, I'm going to buy it to, oh yeah, I've, I've heard about you over there, here, there. You know, I'm checking out the recommendations on G2 Crowd or wherever that the, the brand awareness, like I said, it used, I want to say it was a forgotten art form <laughs> within the B2B yeah. world, but seems people are finally starting to understand the value. You just can't do demand gen without the brand awareness, right? Yeah, that's true. Now, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great opportunity to meet with prospects, customers, understand uh, whether what you're building is, is, is it really valuable or not. Uh, yeah, thankfully, we have been lucky enough uh, where the investor, uh, the folks that we have met so far, uh, or the events we have invested in so far, we've got a great response in terms of uh, being the right sort of uh, folks there. Yeah. Right. Well, and if you're solving the right, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm like, yeah, and if you're solving the right problems for customers and nobody else is really doing it, guess what? You're going to have a pretty good response to you know to that to that messaging. So the one thing I yeah. wanted to follow yes. up on with with Mm-hmm. go to market and a lot of companies, one, I do agree, struggle with the upfront, just getting people you know, in the door. But once you get them in, so now you're going to go through an onboarding process. And again, I think I read somewhere in my research that 
you know, your churn rate is less than 5%. Maybe that's gone up or down, which is phenomenal in this, this type of world. You know, what are you guys doing as a company to operationalize the customer, right? So you move from prospect to customer, you're onboarded, you got to get them trained. And then, you know, we like to throw out customer success, which used to be account management. Just kind of give yeah. us an idea of how you guys approach, you know, the life, you know, the life of a customer within your company. Sure. So it's a great question, right? Uh, a lot of folks, uh, and again, as uh, over the past three years, we've gone from the smaller end of SMB to the largest SMBs or the mid-market customers. Uh, right. Customer success, customer activation has become extremely important for us. We've not, we now actually have a full-fledged uh, customer success team uh, that looks after uh, our, uh, our key and big accounts. The focus there remains very simple. Uh, we've defined a specific path towards uh, value realization. Once the customer specifically hits a level of usage, right? That's where that's when they start seeing the. That's when the value becomes uh, obvious, right? Uh, right. For the first uh, for the first few steps of the customer activation, the value is non-obvious. It's only a claim. Uh, the customer success manager's job essentially is very simple. Handle them to the point where they're able to see the value tangibly on their own marketing dashboard, right? And that's when they right. say, okay, right, this kind of works for us, right? So, uh, and that, you know, very specifically in our case is as and when the customers uh, start engaging with their audience uh, consistent basis, right? Uh, you know, for example, uh, I think would see the value in less than in about ten to you know ten to eighteen days, depending upon oh, really? how big okay. they are. Yeah, and that sort of gives them a very good sense of okay, you know, this is kind of uh, we're now able to see Izuto contributing X amount of traffic to our website already, and this has been just barely three weeks or you know two weeks, and that essentially uh, is a, a big word of confidence, right? And the customer success. Sure. Is, sole job remains hitting that aha moment for them, right? And then being a part of their marketing team, like literally becoming a part of their marketing team to sort of uh, uh, help them use this channel in the right manner. Right. And do you view your customer success managers and folks as, because I think there's two schools of thought, one being really strong with, you know, empathy and here to support more customer service. And then the other school of thought is more, I think you are, you may have already answered by saying part of their market marketing team, it's more of a subject matter expert that can help the customer drive the results versus just somebody there that's reacting to events. Did that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it does, right? Uh, I think uh, in our setup is a lot more the latter, right? Because... Uh, because of the nature of uh, the channel, right? Push notifications is, uh, while it's been there for about three and a half, four years now, it still is a fairly, fairly, fairly uh, nascent, uh, a fairly recent marketing channel, right? right? A lot of people are still having, are still exploring, are still, you know, discovering this channel as we speak, right? They're still not aware about you know, how to use it in the best possible manner, what are the best. Uh, ways to use this, best practices, what to do, what not to do. They have a lot of questions, right? So it's uh, it's part consulting role where they are, they actually handhold them, educate them about how to use the product in the right manner, how to use the channel in the right manner. In fact, uh, 
I remember a customer success manager made this presentation in front of a, a large customer in North America, which, which literally said, uh, your job as marketeers while using push notifications is to become stewards of responsible interruption. Again, push notifications interrupt you as a user, right? You know, you are, you're reading an article in New York Times and suddenly somebody, somebody interrupts you. Now it can get irritating, right? Uh, Our job is to make that, make them, make them interrupt responsibly, right? I think, uh, I've not, <laughs> I've not heard a better framing. No, I haven't heard either. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in fact, uh, I think one of the things which we are, uh, which you're currently discussing right now internally, is to roll out a small uh, roll out awards for the best marketeers uh, on the platform and, and, and give them the, like give them a small trophy of a steward of responsible interruption. Steward of yeah, yeah. Something is really. Uh, Really, a nice way of celebrating uh, responsible marketing. Without a doubt, a lot of people could could learn from that as well. So perfect. I think that's actually a good segue into my last question. You know, you know, what's next for for you, and what's next for the company? I know you're still early in your growth journey, but you know, what do you what are you guys working on now? Uh, one thing which is a focus on uh, is a focus on helping uh, brands uh, own their audience. Right. What we're now adding that solution stack for the platform stack is more capabilities right? so so we'll now go beyond uh, web push notifications and add more and more channels and more and more tools which will uh, help these publishers these brands engage with their audience uh, holistically across web across mobile uh, across okay. email push notifications and so on so that's something which we are currently working on and uh, that's what we will have us, which will occupy us uh, for the next six to eight months. Uh, that's from, from, from a product standpoint. Uh, we'll continue to, to focus on, uh, on, on the U.S. Uh, our core market. Nothing changes on that front, at least. Right? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much okay. it. Oh, that's awesome. And then, again, I want to be respectful of your time. And I thought I found this absolutely fascinating. So thank you for, for sharing your your journey with us. And you know, what I like to close with is kind of our rapid fire round or semi rapid fire round. So the audience gets the chance to know you a little bit more on a, on a personal sure. basis. So if you're ready, I'd like to fire away. Sure thing. Let's go. Awesome. Uh, first question is what is an experience that really helps shape who you are today? And this could be either professionally or personally. One experience that has really shaped us, uh, helped shape us is, uh, us being part of, uh, the B2B accelerator Ubeka that has, okay. that has helped us uh, helped us believe in ourselves more as founders who are bootstrapped who are bootstrapped to build a, a product uh, and a profitable business uh, being part of a community that has uh, that has lot many founders like you really helps you in the journey overall yeah I love, I love that and I think that's so true the confidence factor which I think you guys gained obviously after your the lessons learned from from your first company, but you know, yeah. I think there was a statistic that I read that you know, 90% of founders, now this could be a SaaS startup, B2C, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, really have trouble scaling beyond themselves, right? When they have to bring additional resources. And I think a lot of the time that comes from confidence and the ability that you can expand the business beyond 
yourself or yourself and your co-founder. And so, I, I mean, I think that's a great, definitely the first time we've, we've heard it, but I think it's a, it's a great point to, you know, reinforce with, with the audience. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So number two, what is one thing you would highly recommend? Again, same thing, personal, professional, anything that jumps out at you? Uh, one thing that I would highly recommend, uh, and this comes from from me being a marketeer, and marketing spoils you for life. Right? That's a disclaimer <laughs> that I think I'll put on table right now. Marketing and sales just spoils you for life. Is the one thing I would recommend is uh, is a book that is right now literally in front of me. It's called uh, Influence: The Psychology of Persuasion. I've not read a better book in marketing in the last ten years, and I read quite a few books. I have not read anything that is as exhaustive, as simple, yet extremely powerful that helps you really understand human behavior and what truly drives human behavior. It's not a blog post. No TED Talk blog post can give you insights that are there in this book. Yeah. Interesting. Who's, who's the author of that? Uh, Robert Cialdini. I'll add that to the show notes for sure, but definitely that's... That, not on my uh, current reading list, but I will definitely add that. You know what, Brett? You should, you should, you should uh, send me an address. Right? I would love to give this for you because it's a book that I've sent. I've given to a lot of uh, friends and marketeers. Yes, there is absolutely no reason why you should not have this book as well. You got it. I appreciate it. Perfect. And last but not least, and this is a more on the fun side, I call this last call. If you could only have one more beverage, kind of think of it as your last meal, what would it be? I remember having an amazing beer in a bar in Ghent, Belgium, a few years back. And the bar had some 200 odd varieties, brands of beer. I would love to go back there for that last sip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a man after my own heart. <laughs> I always go out every time I have a guest that they give it, I'm like, man, that's a really good idea. But I still default back to the, you know, good draft, still an IPA fan, but I'm, I'm flexible yeah. with some of the Belgium and, you know, a good cup of hot coffee too is hard to, hard to beat. So that's uh, good. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for the, for the time today. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience is going to learn a lot. And, um, Definitely, we'll keep tabs on your journey as you guys continue to grow and scale, and we'll we'll check back in with you in a bit. And lastly, if there's folks that want to find out more about you, you know, what's the best place for for people to reach you? Sure, I uh, you can reach me on uh, my email, which is we at the rate i z o o t o dot com. That is we at the rate i z o dot com. Uh, you could find me on Twitter. I am at the rate V-I-V-E-K-K, K on Twitter. Yeah, give me a shout. Okay. And I will add those to the show notes as well. And appreciate to have yourself. I was going to say a good rest of your day, but you're already evening across the globe for me. So <laughs> enjoy the rest yeah. of your evening and we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me here. Lovely speaking with you. Have a good day. Likewise. All right. Thanks. thanks. Take care. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. Solo business owners and small companies need a no-hack business growth solution to cut through the noise. Using the proven ISETT process, Brett helps businesses build stable and reliable growth plans by focusing on what's most important, insight, story, engagement, and talent. To learn more, visit brettrainer.com. 
You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.